Hernia Talk Live is a weekly podcast answering your questions about hernias and hernia-related topics using experts in their field. It is not intended to replace personalized medical advice from your physician or surgeon. Support for this podcast comes from the Beverly Hills Hernia Center, your experts in hernia care. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dr. Sharin Tofai. Uh, today is another episode of Hernia Talk Tuesdays. As you know, every week we gather together and get all your questions answered in a live format, anything that has to do with hernias. This is currently being simulcast on Facebook Live and as a Zoom. And afterwards, I'll make sure that you all have access to the videos to like and share on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at HerniaDoc, where I will also post links to the YouTube channel. So today we have the lovely Dr. Michael Rosen. He is a hernia surgeon, the chief surgeon, and, and most senior surgeon at Cleveland Clinic for their hernia center. Do you actually have a hernia center? I, I forgot. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, Dr. Rosen, I've known forever. He's past president of our American Hernia Society. He's very well known amongst all of us throughout the world for hernias. He's, I think, one of the tallest surgeons we have. So you you always stand out from that aspect. You're also, uh, I'll tell you guys, you'll you'll learn it in the next hour. His, um, His speech is very entertaining because he'll just tell it like it is. And uh, from what I understand, he's super excited to interact with patients. He's always had that aspect of him. And so um, thank you, Dr. Rosen, for joining me. Well, thank you very much. Uh, like, like you said, I'm really excited to be here and uh, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. So we already have people logging in from uh, as far away as Mexico City. Um, we also do get people from Europe that come in. The timing's a little bit off, but uh, let's get started, shall we? I'm gonna go straight to questions. Great. All right, let's just start with some definition. What is a giant hernia? Because that's really the topic of interest for today. And what is your definition of loss of domain? So these are great questions. In fact, when I saw the title of this talk, I was a little bit like, huh, I wonder exactly what this entails. So so I think, um, you know, probably the, the most honest answer to that question is like so many things in hernia surgery we don't have great definitions and we don't have standardization. Uh, and so those type of things really limit our ability to communicate uh, kind of on a higher level so that everybody really understands um, what we're talking about. And, and I think that the struggles with that, a, a lot of us as surgeons try and use words that just you know are easy to understand and, and everybody can grasp to understand what we're talking about. So I think yeah. if you... Probably uh, if you step back and say, okay, well, you know, a hernia obviously just means there's a hole and there's something coming through there. Right. And, you know, what makes it giant? Well, I think there's, you know, two big things uh, to think about when, when we think about what is a giant hernia. I think number one is what are the challenges for the surgeon? And then number two would be what are the challenges for the patients? Uh, not only living with those hernias, but also you know, overcoming the surgical procedures that are necessary to try and correct those. So I, I look at kind of giant hernias, maybe as a broader term, complicated hernias yeah. uh, are things where the hole is very large. So patients tend to lose a lot of their core function of their abdominal wall. And the, typically the muscles that help you digest food, that help you take deep breaths, that help you uh, move your bowels. Uh, they're gone. And so there's a lot of quality of life issues that, that go along with not having that. And there's a lot of technical challenges that come with, you know, trying to get all that stuff back together, get all the insides back inside uh, and deal with all those things. So I, I think, you know, a giant hernia to me just means something really big. That's going to be a big physiologic strain for the patient Uh, and then I think it's also, uh, something that the surgeon kind of, you know, if, if they feel like it's giant, they need to be prepared to make sure they have the skill set, the support staff, the, you know, the, the right location to kind of take care of all those. And I, I, I'd probably say, you know, the same thing for the loss of domain question, um, just, you know, in general, 
when we think about um, domain, it, it basically just means, you know, your insides are meant to be inside your abdomen with all of your muscle and your core, they're holding everything together. And when that breaks down, uh, even if the hole's not terribly big, if more of your insides, your intestines, your organs and whatnot, get through that hole outside of the abdomen, uh, when we push that back in, kind of loss of domain means yeah. you can anticipate pressure on your heart, pressure on your diaphragm. And I kind of describe it to patients. I think the easiest way to think about this is if you have a suitcase and you go on a trip and you're there for 20 years, and then you try and shove everything back in that suitcase, you can be jumping on it, pounding on it, squeezing it. Yeah. And, and, and it's not easy to get that to come back together. And that that's kind of, I think for patients, the easiest way to think about that's it. That's a great analogy. I may steal that. That's a yeah. great analogy. I'm sure yeah. I stole it from somebody. Too. I usually talk about like clothing, but I yeah. think suitcase is a good one because it's, it's, you're trying to really, you can only expand your abdominal walls so much and you're trying to fit all the intestines back in. At one point it was back in, right? Well, so why is it at one point it used to be all back in, but once you burst this abdominal wall, then it, it's hard to go back in again. Sure. So it's kind of like um, when you think about a hernia again, it, it's kind of like if you have a hole in your tire, uh, every time you stand up, cough, increase your pressure inside your abdomen, you know, take a deep breath, whatever, you're pushing things out there. So every time that tire goes around, we know that that tire, the balloon of it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And while hernias don't really pop, yeah. they, the pressure in that balloon just grows. And you know why some people get really big ones and others don't, right. it's not entirely clear why that is, but, but as it gets bigger and it goes out there, your body just is not used to having things back in, uh, in that space. So it really does put a lot of strain on folks when we push it all back in there. In your practice, you do almost exclusively hernia surgery. Um, you're most well known for your giant hernia operations. I call them giant. Sometimes patients come to my office and you know they have a visible hernia and they say, oh, is this the biggest one you see? I'm like, no, been bigger. <laughs> I'm sure you get the same question. Like, is this the biggest you've seen? And you probably are like, not even close. My answer to that is thankfully for you, not in most yeah. cases. I think no doubt about it. Uh, I tell everybody, you definitely do not want to be special in my practice <laughs> uh, because, because typically, you know, th those are very, very challenging cases for the surgeon, but, but also for the patients. Yeah. Uh, through all that. Yeah. The next question has to do with, uh, you know, what it really uh, involves. Let's go to this next question. How is abdominal reconstruction different than a tummy tuck? What you do, how is that different from a tummy tuck? That's a great question. So, so I think, um, when you think about abdominal reconstruction, you think about tummy tucks and kind of everything in between there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you just kind of broaden it maybe to like abdominal core surgery. If you just put it in that broad category, which all this stuff kind of fits in. Um, when we think about the abdomen and we think about surgery inside the abdomen, there's basically, and when I talk to patients, there's three parts that I need to be dealing with and they kind of come in equal levels of importance so the first part is the intestines and, and in any operation inside your admin it's really really important that we deal with the intestinal side of it because right. there can be scar tissue where your bowels are stuck to different things and different hernias and you want to make sure we don't have any holes in those because those can create complications and leaks and whatnot right. so that's step number one then step number two is the muscle and the fascia uh, that kind of give you your strength. And then step number three is the skin and kind of the subcutaneous tissue. So when we think about a hernia, there's a, there's a real hole there. And so we have to deal with the intestines and then we have to do things to make those muscles that are no longer together, come back together. And then we got to make sure we have good skin and soft tissue coverage. Uh, when you think about a tummy tuck, and, and, and most of the time, I think when people are mentioning that, they're really meaning more of like an abdominoplasty, but there's also something kind of on the other stream called a paniculectomy. An abdominoplasty uh, is, is commonly in people with a disease called rectostiasis, where there's not actually a hole, but your six-pack muscles that everybody has that kind of hold you together can be stretched out just a little bit commonly due to pregnancy, but, but other issues as well. Uh, and as that gets stretched out, you're not really at risk for um, a piece of intestines getting stuck through there, like the hole, 
But there are core issues that go along with that. There are back problems that go along with that. And, and for some folks, they are symptomatic. And so often in that situation, there is bringing that muscle and fascia back together. Uh, typically in our practice, that's often done with, by a plastic surgeon. Uh, and often doesn't require mesh, but, but it, sometimes it does. And then the other part of a tummy tuck is that you remove a lot of the excess skin on the lower abdomen uh, at the same time. So you kind of tighten back up the muscles and you remove some of the extra skin. And then there's another operation called a paniculectomy in some of the more complex hernias where really there's just what we call as a panis of extra skin, not yeah. necessarily with the diastasis. And we can remove that at the same time, but, but does add some morbidity to the operation. So all those things, you know, we carefully decide uh, uh, what that is, but, but in every operation, there's always the skin, the muscles, fascia, and then the intestines uh, th that we break up and how we approach those. Yeah, one of the questions uh, is about this excess skin. So do you, routine, you know, when you have a hernia and it's big enough that it's constantly pushing out, it starts to thin out the skin. In fact, I tell my patients often, like the skincare is very important between now and when you eventually get your surgery because the skin can thin out, thin out, thin out, and then you can get complications of this, you get ulcerations or breakdown of the skin. So that I tell them to put, you know, some type of moisturizer on it, keep it moist. And then sometimes a binder helps reduce the pressure on the skin if, if applied correctly to reduce skin complications. But once they get to the point where you're operating on them, uh, do you routinely remove the excess skin or, the, or is that not necessarily a good thing? Well, so it's really a case by case decision. It actually, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was younger, we used to spend a lot more time at the same big hernia operation trying to make the skin look perfect. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what I've learned over time is that often when you do that, it requires extra incisions, extra yeah. dissection of the skin and predisposes you to potentially healing issues, blood supply issues, infection. Right. And so what I really now try and convey to patients is that I'm going to get rid of most of the extra skin mm -hmm. with a limited resection, fix the hernia. And mm -hmm. then a year later, once everything is all healed up, if there needs to be some revisions of just some extra skin here and there, that can be done at a much smaller operation and lower risk of those complications. So, so I, I've tended to not do them at the same time with, with, yeah. with few exceptions. Um, and I think most, I, honestly, I think most patients really are, are more miserable from the lack of their core muscles and their hernia. Yeah. Once they fix that, they feel better. And they're like, you know what, I'm good enough. Let me go. And then some patients are like, no, no, I, I really don't like the way this looks, the scar, the whatnot. And then, and then that can be done as a much less invasive revision of that scar tissue. And how much of that nasty or thinned out or loose skin from the hernia pair does kind of regress and look back normal or not so much? Well, I think if it's really, so actually, you know, as we talked about kind of those three layers, this is one of the most important things for kind of the really, what I like to describe as kind of the end stage of hernia repairs. And I think this is just to kind of touch right. on the second, because I think that yeah. there are a lot of patients who are told there's nothing we can do for you yes. because when you look at them, it appears that there's not enough skin or soft tissue to kind of be left behind once you get rid of all of the thinned out skin, the, the nasty skin and whatnot. And yeah. so this is where, this is one of the things that we do offer. And I mean, these are, these are major, you know, these are 15 hour operations, but they're, they're possible for the right patient where we actually do what's called a flap, where we take tissue, skin, muscle, and blood supply from the leg. And with our plastic surgeons, we're able to actually do a flap where we actually can transfer that tissue and cover people's abdominal walls, uh, almost like an auto transplant of muscle and fascia. And, and so that's really for kind of the, you know, the extreme case yeah. there. But, but when we have to resect and there's, there's not enough, when we know we're going to take off the skin at the big operation, and we know it's not going to come back together. That's where we sometimes do these things as combo cases. Does that include muscle and fascia or just fascia? Yep. Uh, well, typically you can do uh, perforator sparing. We, we, they're called an anterior lateral thigh flap. And it basically yeah. just involves, if you think about your, your leg, your, your uh, you know, proximal, your femur, your thigh muscle, we can take basically the anterior compartment of that 
and there's oh. a big blood vessel that it comes on and we can actually plug it in the blood vessel inside the admin. And it, yeah. it really is, you know, it's a, it's a flat that it's your whole anterior thigh. So it has a lot of skin, a lot of muscle. There's some morbidity to the leg for doing it, mm-hmm. uh, but it really does kind of cover things up and, and is, you know, uh, again, a, a morbid operation, but can really take patients who have been deemed, you know, no hope at all and give them a, a chance at, at a much better quality of life, perhaps not normal, but better. Yeah, so we have a comment about how this is so amazing that you're using your patient's own tissue uh, for as part of her repair, and, and it should be the future. Do you want to comment on that? The morbidity is huge, and by morbidity, I mean it completely changes your life. In not yeah. a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well. So, so I think, uh, and you know, maybe this ties into like, what do we need? to put people back together, yes. whether that's autologous tissue, whether that's mesh, what the mesh is made from, because th- these are common questions that we get, you know, particularly yeah. nowadays when, when there's all the things on TV and whatnot. And I think, you know, like my answer to that for patients to understand is that, you know, nothing is perfect. Uh, I, I will usually say there's no perfect surgeon, despite how hard that is for us to admit. There's no perfect operation. There's no perfect patient. There's no perfect mesh. And all of these things, you know, have risks and benefits to them. Um, And so, you know, something like synthetic mesh does good, but in certain situations, it can cause harm too. Uh, Like you said, you know, taking autologous tissue, it sounds great, but always remember when we talk about a flap, like what that is, where we're basically moving tissue from a donor site to a recipient site, by definition, the donor suffers some morbidity yeah. and the recipient is supposed to suffer or is supposed to get some advantage to that. And so for these big autologous flaps, we really use them as a last resort yeah. because as you mentioned, uh, you know, number one, they're not quite as durable as, as a formal mesh is, but, and we usually use them just for more of a coverage tissue coverage. Yes. Uh, and number two is particularly for the big ones, you know, while you'll get that coverage in your abdominal wall, you will have some weakness of your leg that, that, you know, particularly for certain patients can be life altering for sure. So yeah, you're definitely in many ways of everything we do in surgery, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And and it's kind of the art of finding that balance for for how hard to push for the right patient and and when to not push that hard and kind of when to have these conversations. Cause I, I think that particularly for more advanced abdominal reconstruction, you know, not, nothing is, is perfect. And, and it's just yeah. about getting the best quality of life while trying not to cause too much harm. But just to clarify that uh, the risk of using, let's say this thigh flap, right? One is that it won't take. So once you transfer it over, it'll die and you've lost it. Yep. The other lost- risk is there's a nerve, there are nerves there that you can damage. You're permanently uh, probably not, uh, numb along that area. Like you mentioned, it may affect your ability to use that leg like before it may provide weakness and then also the abdomen is not flat after that it's a little bit it's rounded yeah uh, because you've lost the nerves because it's no longer a functional abdominal wall it's just a coverage right And, and that's and that's that's really really important um to understand is that this is kind of for the end stage type oh. disease or somebody who really thought there's there's no way we're going to be able to kind of take care of this problem but for the routine type hernias even for some of the more complicated ones uh as you you know as you kind of pointed out the, the morbidity of that is not worth the potential advantage of it being autologous tissue unfortunately right. you know um, once you have a hernia your autologous tissue isn't where it should be and that's you know that's the problem for, for whatever reason, whether it was some technical issue with your operation, the way you heal, the quality of your fascia, bad luck, an infection, um, you're left with your tissue is not back together. So now there will always be tension there, more tension than there was before. And that will always kind of create this dilemma of what do we need to do to get it to stay together uh, and heal for the second time in an area that's kind of already proven that it doesn't want to be together. Yeah, so um, I'd like to just kind of keep on this topic because there's a lot, there's a lot of concern 
that we are overusing mesh. I agree that we are overusing mesh. I think, for example, a one centimeter belly button hernia um, in most situations should not need mesh. Although many surgeons do put mesh in a one centimeter hernia. And however, for a 20 or 25 centimeter hernia, you know, the, the width of my shoulders, if the hernia is that big, the opportunity to do a tissue repair, that person's already failed the fact that their tissue is just not healthy enough to, to withstand any operation. So they need some type of mesh. And mesh can be anything. Mesh can be a thick, heavyweight polypropylene, or it can be um, something like more biologic, less synthetic. We have a lot of technology that's come about that is not, there's not one type of mesh. There's at least like 30 in the market right now. Um, where you can choose. So this idea that all mesh should be banned means every single patient that you do probably has no option or has a horrible option. I'll give you an example. I had a patient who was in a horrible car accident, um, almost died, uh, lost his spleen, uh, his whole belly was filleted open multiple times, like compartment syndrome, et cetera. So he came to me after basically he was, um, uh, after he was alive, but he had all these fistulas and he had stool, basically shit coming out of his belly. And his entire life was to wear gloves and just scoop out poop off of his belly. Long story short, I fixed him. But he had so much operations before that I had to do exactly what he said, the, the flap. So, uh, he, he didn't have enough, he had lost muscle from all these mesh, he had mesh infections and he officially, so he had lost so much tissue, I could only bring him back to like this much. And I couldn't, there's like a gap. And otherwise, if you don't close it, like your intestine will fall out. So we did a flap of muscle, which sounds interesting. You can use muscle from your butt or your side and bring it over or your leg and bring it over uh, to a different place. But that muscle needs to be fed. And it's fed by the nerves. And if you cut the nerves because you just took it off of where it originated, it's, it's just a piece of like, it might as well be fat. There's not, the, there's no function to it. And he got so depressed by the fact that he, he had, used to have a flat belly. Now his true shit was coming out. <laughs> Sorry, poop was, stool was coming out of it. But, you know, it completely destroyed his life. The fact that he, you know, had a round abdomen. And people who make comments that are all inclusive, mesh should be banned, don't understand that uh, you could potentially make every single patient of yours be completely maimed uh, if they don't have the options of different types of mesh. And you're the specialist, you will figure out what the best mesh is. But um, these giant hernias, they became like that for a reason. What yeah, yeah. So, so listen. I, first of all, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, uh, the, I think the general statement of do we overutilize mesh is true, uh, and I and I think that, um, you know, it's probably important for everybody to understand, like, you know, how did we get here? Like, why 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 do surgeons feel like they are using more mesh? Well, it's because when we didn't use mesh routinely hernias failed and so i think that and they came back and so i think that you know from the surgeon's perspective we want to help people we want to make the whole go away and we want to do the best thing we can i think that um so you know i think we, we kind of go through a period and this is how surgery works is you nobody does anything then everybody does everything and then you kind of wind up somewhere in the middle and i think that, that that's kind of what we're learning now and i think we have a lot more to go to figure this out. And I think, you know, everybody has to pitch in because as you said, the answer isn't binary and it's not simple. The answer isn't everybody should get mesh and the answer isn't no one should get mesh. Yes. So the only way to really figure this stuff out is for all the stakeholders to really engage in this process. And I think probably in, you know, 20 years in this field, what I've feel like the most is a lot of people feel like a hernia is kind of like you, you get the operation, you're done and for the rest of your life. You never have to think about that again. And I think one of the things that we're learning over the years is not just for giant hernias, but for all hernia surgery 
is it's a little bit more like orthopedics where, you know, when you get your back or you get your knee or you get your hip done, they tell you day one, this is going to last for 15 to 20 years and you're going to need it done again. And so we all need to participate in kind of furthering the knowledge. Uh, I think surgeons need to participate and put their data in registries and whatnot. I think industry, the makers of mesh need to participate and, yeah. and, and follow these things carefully. And I also think patients need to engage in this and say, you know, we really need to come back for follow. We need to answer these questionnaires. We need to get this information out so that we can know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Because there's no question in my life, the more follow-up I have, the more people I see long-term, the more humbled I am by thinking, wow, you know, I'm not as great as I thought I was and, 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 and we got to make this better. And, and that's where true improvement in, in this field comes from is kind of looking at things and saying, what can we make it better? And if it's, you know, improving patient optimization, if it's improving surgical technique, if it's finding the right mesh and, and the thing about mesh, I think the, the hardest thing for people to kind of understand about mesh is um, while it's very easy to kind of point the finger when something goes wrong for the patient, I'm sure surgeons are guilty of this as well is that, you know, when the mesh goes in, there's a lot of technique and, 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 and skill in how that happens. And even in the best of hands, things can happen. There's no question about it. But, but you know, the way that all these things are done matter. And they probably matter to the outcome uh, for that. So when, when things go wrong with a mesh, we really need a, enough information to know kind of how was it placed? What was the technique? What type of mesh was it? And all those things so that we can get a large enough experience to then be like, okay, this is a real signal. We have a problem here and we all need to change. Right. Uh, and a lot of things have to happen. I think, you know, for that environment to take hold, I think we're getting some momentum. And I think actually just, again, just the fact that we're here, we're having this conversation, there's patients, there's people listening, uh, you know, and the thousands of people who, 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 who participate with you are, is so important because it just gets the message out there that look, yeah. we don't, we don't have all the answers and we all have to participate to get them. Yeah. It's uh, you know, as, as scientists, we know that we don't have all the answers, but it's sometimes hard for people that are like victims to accept the fact that we're operating on people without having all the answers. Well, that, that's, you know, I think it's so important for people to realize is um, you know, that, that is at the end of the day, as a surgeon, you still have to come to work every day and you have to take care of patients. And yeah. in, in, in our world, there's not always going to be enough evidence to, to be 100% certain this is what we should be doing. And I think that level of honesty with patients is important to understand, hey, look, I am doing today, February 2nd, 2021, what I think is the best thing for you. Um, and you know, one of the things we do at the Cleveland Clinic, I mean, we have 10 ongoing randomized control trials right now. And we, we really try it, it, about 70, 80% of the patients that we operate are, are involved in some clinical trial. And one of the things we talk to patients about is this is what we're here to do. And we're, we're trying to find the answers of what yeah. works and what doesn't. And, yeah, and, absolutely. and you know, whether it's technique, mesh, whatever. Uh, and I think that that kind of passion to figure that out and then, and then make a change. Cause I, I'll give you one interesting, we just completed a paper and we just actually submitted it. Yeah. It was actually looked at two different kinds of meshes, like a heavyweight mesh and a medium weight mesh where people kind of felt like, you know, the heavyweight mesh, you're going to be able to feel it and, and it's not good and it hurts for, for ventral hernia repair. And so the patients were blinded at one year later, we asked the simple question, you know, do you feel your mesh? Yes or no. And, and, and amazingly enough, there was 175 people in each arm and it was to the exact same number of patients with the two meshes said they thought they felt the mesh. So I think it just shows there's nothing perfect. And I think that this, uh, you know, we, we, we need to get the information. We need to ask the patients and understand what, what, you know, what they feel and what matters to them. What is your thought on biologic mesh? Biologic mesh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the term, is basically mesh, which is like some type of product that's used to bolster or, or bridge or kind of help cover or, um, a hernia. It's biologic in that it's not synthetic. Um, and they're almost always, yeah, they're always uh, absorbable. So what are your thoughts on biologic mesh and then cross-linked or not cross-linked? 
um, especially in a like does it matter and especially in a patient who's already had a prior mesh infection polypropylene mesh infection yep great question so so uh, maybe I, I i would uh a couple maybe different perceptions on on the biologic mesh so my you know, biologic mesh what it basically means is that uh it, it starts from biologic tissue so it could be uh pig skin, it can be cow pericardium, there's a whole bunch of different sheep stomach and whatnot. That's where it starts from. But I always think it's important for people to understand because it is a common uh, thing to think, okay, and, and the term biologic is certainly more accepting, especially nowadays than synthetic mesh and, and the fear that goes around that. So I think one of the things I always like to tell patients is, you know, be careful about thinking something's biologic because we are very good at taking biologic tissue and then making it synthetic. And the perfect example of that is actually if you terminally cross-link pig skin, so it starts off as biologic, then you make it into actually leather that we would all consider is something synthetic. Mm. So, so the idea that it's biologic, so it's safer, it's, it's probably a stretch. You just need to be careful. Now, just like everything, right. before, there could be advantages to making something more synthetic. It might make it a little bit more durable. So my, my general concept about, um, about biologic mesh is I think in today's world right now, um, I think that we don't have enough information to know, uh, is it better than synthetic mesh, meaning better, meaning less recurrences, less pain, less infectious issues. It certainly has been heavily marketed as that, but there are a couple of randomized control trials. In fact, I'm, I'm one of the PIs. We're actually, it's about to be finished April 1st. It's taken me eight years and we'll submit it for publication. So we, we're about to analyze all the data where we put biologic mesh versus a synthetic mesh in kind of contaminated challenging cases and, and we'll see what happens in two years. Yeah, fascinating. So I don't think we know the answer to that. And I think that uh, it's, it's a fair conversation to have with your surgeon. Yeah. Uh, in my practice today, in today's world, I don't use a lot of biologic mesh because I yeah. feel if it's okay to use a mesh, I will use a synthetic mesh. Otherwise, I might not use a mesh that day and come back another day. And then as far as cross-leaking goes, like I said, you know, I think there are theoretical advantages to it and that it might make it a little bit stronger but there's also some potential disadvantages that it makes it a little bit more synthetic. And so if you, if you want something uh, less synthetic and that's why you chose it, you might not be getting those properties from it. So, um, it, but you know, unfortunately, and, and I'll kind of revert back and I think this is so key, you know, this is where we really do need head to head trials where we can look at this stuff in kind of comparable patients. Yeah. Say, is it really all just technique? I mean, is all that matter that you have a good surgeon put it in and it doesn't really matter what your mesh is or are some meshes, no matter what, going to cause harm and we need to take all that out? And kind of figuring all that stuff out requires time and, and, and engagement. And yeah. Everybody. Yeah. We're not born with all this knowledge that we have to learn from experience. Um, yeah. I think those of us that used biologics in its early stages, uh, I was one of them. Uh, has either stopped or really, really redu reduced how much biologics we use because the results are not there um, for it. But but it is appealing, and I, the, 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 I, maybe I'll just tag on it because this is the other like the absorbable synthetics are like the newer ones out there. Yes. And I think like in, in this world where there is a kind of overwhelming fear of synthetic mesh for, and as we said, for for good reasons in certain cases. Yeah. Um, that there's a big push that like, you know, well, if you don't want mesh, why don't you have this? And I, and I would just stress, again, we don't have a lot of understanding of these things. We don't really know what happens long term. And, and like everything, it, there will potentially be some advantage to not having a permanent mesh in there. Yeah. But there might be some disadvantages in that hernias come back, they, they become more complicated. But I think we just need to kind of wait that out. Yes. And, he, you know, because because I my biggest message to patients is, listen, whatever mess we choose here, you know, that, that's a little bit more like the golf club that drives the ball. Like it's it's not really the club that's making the ball go far. It's the person yeah. swinging the club. So a lot of that sure. technique, and, and you got to trust the the, the, judgment of the person doing it. 
and, and no one mesh is going to make it all okay for you. And, and it's unlikely that any one mesh is going to be horrible. And I, I tell most people, look, if you find a surgeon you like and, and they can do, and they're doing a good operation, they're experienced, just, just do whatever they do best. And, and if, you know, it probably doesn't matter what they put in, you'll be okay. Uh, and, and if the mesh isn't put in right, it probably doesn't matter what the mesh is made of. It's probably right. Uh, one of the, you mentioned uh, synthetic absorbables. Uh, one of the questions is, what is your opinion on phasix ST? Yep. So, so I don't actually, I don't have any clinical experience with that. Um, so I, I can't comment on my own personal experience. Yeah. I've certainly had cases where I've operated where it's been there before and whatnot. Um, I, I'm a little bit more of a hard line. I, I don't ever try a new mesh unless it's involved in a trial because I just. Yes, feel I same. Yeah, I agree. I think. Um, I think that there are kind of concepts of it that I think are very appealing. Uh, and I think the idea of how long do you really need the mesh to be there uh, is, a, is a fascinating question. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that the problem with all of this stuff is just hypothetical, right? And, and yeah. you know, you need to do five-year studies to say, okay, if I put this mesh in, it might look okay at two years. But at five years, it's all coming back and people won't be happy with that. So I think in today's thing, I, I haven't got it in my practice, but I think that, um, you know, it certainly has some appealing characteristics, but I really think we need long-term data before we kind of. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, absorbable meshes and they're typically absorbed either within three or four weeks or around eight or nine months. Um, at least that's what the theory is. The synthetic absorbable physics ST is marketed to uh, absorb around two years, 18 months or two years. The thought being that that's really all you need and then your kind of tissue strength and scar tissue kicks in. Um, we don't have the five-year data on that yet. And I believe the three-year data is kind of iffy. I think it's like something, correct me if I'm wrong, like 20% recurrence. Yeah, it was pretty, so, you know, it's pretty, the biggest thing, my biggest like kind of, theoretical concern with it is we know if we put a permanent synthetic mesh in there when you really follow these people out to five years recurrence rates are higher than all of us wish they would be so if if a permanent mesh is failing at 15 percent 20 percent at five years then one that goes away it, it likely isn't going to be better than that it's it's going to be the same or potentially worse and the idea is just how much worse is it? And I mean, nobody knows the answer to that. If it's the same, then I think, well, if you don't need something permanent in you, all the better. Right. Uh, but if it's twice as high, then, you know, that might be a bridge to synthetic mesh down the road, which, which isn't necessarily probably worth another operation. Yet another operation, yeah. So the operations you do are um, quite rigorous on you and also on the patient. The question is, how often do you need your patient to go to the ICU or be left intubated after surgery? So um, we've actually done a lot of work around this because this is kind of one of the big things is always to kind of understand this and get the right resources available mm -hmm. and plan it out. So the reality is it goes back to that first question, which is loss of domain. And, and can yes. you predict once you push everything back in, uh, how much that is? So we do some basic tests in the operating room. We somewhat eyeball it before surgery based on the CT scan and the exam and just kind of the general health of the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I, I would say seven or eight years ago, I would probably say maybe 50% of my patients went to the ICU uh, yeah. post-op. I would probably tell you now, just because we've gotten probably better at selecting patients, better at optimizing, you know, more efficient at doing the operation, I would probably say 10 to 15%. Of yeah, my, that's great to know. Yeah, which is, which is, is probably more than most is people is that because of you and your experience or now you have a team that's more well-versed in recovery? I think, well, a couple of things. I think number one, I think it's like everything. And when you kind of learn as you go, I think there, one of the things that I did learn over the years is when we were much more aggressive at keeping people intubated because we were afraid they weren't going to be able to breathe and whatnot. Yeah. And, and, and while that sounded like a great idea, there was a downside to that is particularly if you're giving people paralyzing medicine and being in the ICU or the ventilator affects their lungs that, that we weren't necessarily helping as many people as we thought. Yeah. So we kind of refined it to predict like what pressure we could take the breathing tube out and not go to the ICU. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, once we kind of figured that out, we were able to refine it and predict pretty well with that. And I think the other thing is just like everything. 
after you do, you know, a thousand operations or something, you get more efficient at it. It takes me much less time in the operating room. So they're getting, you know, several liters less of fluid. It's less anesthetic and we're just more efficient at yeah. this situation than I used to be. Uh, yeah. And I think that helps as well. And I'm probably, the other thing is I'm probably good at knowing who's not going to tolerate this operation and maybe yeah. say no to those people up front or, or having them lose weight, quit smoking and all those type of things to improve your outcomes. We do have a question about weight loss uh, coming up. Before that, a lot of really positive comments. Uh, OMG, music to my ears. I'm so impressed by two brilliant surgeons who are so scientifically rigorous. That might have been my mom. That might have been my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Your mom says hi. (laughs) Uh, Next question is about Botox. Do you use Botox for your patients? This is a technique that helps relax the muscles before surgery if uh, to help close these uh, big defects. If so, how many units and does insurance cover the cost? Yeah, great question. So, so I don't use Botox. Um, I, I did maybe like 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I um, you know, kind of one of those things like we just talked about where I kind of got better at the operation, uh, better understanding how to do these things and close these patients. Um, I, I have completely stopped using it. I know that it's kind of a bit trendy right now to do it. Yeah. Um, it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a lot of expense that typically is, is, is borne out on the patient's because uh, again, I don't do this anymore. I know there's some consideration of whether or not insurance covers it. Um, I, I can tell you at, at my hospital, it, insurance would not cover it and the patients would have to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's about $3,500 for just the Botox because it's about yes. 50 units. So I, I feel pretty strongly that um, you know it, it would really have to show that it's better than my normal. And so I, I can just give you, we're actually just submitting a paper with 1300 of these type of cases and we close about 95 percent of patients without any botox so so you're down to only five percent of people can't be closed okay that's great is those five percent of people the hernias are so big that botox really isn't going to help those people so we're actually we're just actually trying to get started a placebo controlled double blind trial yeah we blind the surgeon we blind the patients and we give a, a placebo or Botox uh, to a certain group of patients who are high risk for not closing to see yeah. if in fact it adds something. Cause this is one of those things that again, like we kind of, it, it makes intuitive sense, but it's a lot of cost. It's a yeah. lot of time. It's extra visits for the patients. Uh, and so I, I really do think that um, we really ought to study this carefully uh, before we just say, Hey, do it because my and I guess my biggest concern about Botox um, is often I think that people who are less experienced with abdominal wall reconstruction might use it in an attempt to try and make the abdominal wall reconstruction easier, yeah. and it's not really going to change that. So you still on the day of surgery, you're still going to be able to go there and put people back together, and so um, you know again an area that needs to be studied, but but I don't I don't do it anymore. Okay, one question about if someone's already had nerve injury or a nerve severed from previous abdominal hernia repairs of the ventral hernia is there any way to repair a recurrent hernia without mesh and would a flap be something to consider yeah flap probably not flap just to kind of reiterate it that really is um, the, the morbidity of that unless we're talking about just a it's an absolute massive hernia we don't typically go for flaps yeah um, it's very uncommon and yeah. as far as the nerve and the mesh and everything like, you know, that, that really does require kind of sitting down on a case-by-case basis and understanding kind of what happened in the first operation. Because the reality is a lot of nerve injuries are technical, not mesh-related, meaning yes. that you got lost, you're in the wrong plane, you, you, or there was just a nerve you had to cut, and there's scar tissue around that nerve. So, so while the mesh is kind of an innocent bystander, it's not necessarily the issue. And there's no question that there are nerve injuries that that occur. So kind of understanding that if it's truly a nerve problem, then there are often things we can do to address the nerve and then addressing the hernia is kind of a separate thing. And, 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 you know, once it's a recurrent hernia, uh, I'm hard pressed to say you wouldn't need a piece of mesh. Uh, You know, there's no question today's world, we get people who are just like, I mean, I just absolutely don't want it. And I, and I, I would say, and I'm sure you would, you've seen this in your practice as well. 
there are rare people that for just whatever reason that I don't know why just respond to mesh differently than many other people. Uh, And they, whether they get an incredible inflammatory response, whether they get a lot of scar tissue or whether a fair number of patients with that were, uh, we presented at the, at the meeting and we're writing up our experience because it's a very unique, but challenging set of patients. It's in fairness to a lot of people. I don't think that number is incredibly high. I think the people who have it are very devastated by it. Uh, And I think that what's what's hard for us as surgeons, uh, and me in particular, and a lot of this more fits around the inguinal world, is you can have a mesh that looks fine, but it's causing pain. And kind of how to bring all that back together and kind of figure out what we're doing. So so I think when when people, uh, and and just as as when, when somebody, let's say, just make it easier, uh, when it's a primary hernia, no prior mesh or anything like that, and the primary complaint is pain, that I think it's important to step back as a surgeon and, and for the patients to understand that your pain might not be related to your hernia. It might be just related to damage that was done that gave you this hernia. Right. And so fixing the hernia might not make that better and right. kind of make sure you understand where the pain's coming from at first. Because then otherwise you get this terrible, vicious cycle where essentially, you know, you had somebody with pain and a hernia. Now they have mesh and pain and then trying to figure out where all this stuff started and, and how to fix it. It's really challenging. Yeah, it's a very, we, we had at least one entire session on Asia syndrome or Schoenfeld syndrome, which is a yep. true systemic reaction to any implant mesh uh, among them and it's it's challenging and we're we're working on figuring out how to at least either treat them or be able to predict we're not getting uh into anything very good yet it's very rare and yeah i think the the hardest currently have are not good i mean i think the hardest thing is identify those people uh even after they get it and then and then figure out like what it's going to take and kind of what is a reasonable expectation of making folks better yeah what are the risks of sutures pulling out or the muscle tearing when suturing muscle? And can the risk be reduced by suturing technique or suture selection? So, so I would say anytime you have an operation, when they close back up your muscles, you know, and you don't have a hernia, but they just close you. There's yeah. great data that technique really matters. Oh, and, yeah. and really for one of the very few things I would say is that, um, you know, we know that, if a technique is done with kind of, we call them small bites very close together and it's time consuming, that improves outcomes. Yes. Now, when we small talk about bites technique. Uh-huh. Yep. And that, that is kind of one of the few things in surgery where there really are great trials that kind of support that. So you um, use that regularly when you do your fascial closure? Yep. For, for, for not hernia patients. Um, when you're fixing a hernia, yeah. um, you know, I think, so if you're going to say, well, let's fix a hernia, um, without mesh and just use sutures. Well, we know that, you know, the, 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 there's a hole there. So there's tension. And when you pull things back together, we do know that the sutures typically won't hold together. Although I will tell you, uh, one of the next trials that we do want to do uh, at the clinic, uh, which I think would be an interesting trial that I don't think has ever actually been done is for an incisional hernia, um, a smaller one, like maybe five to seven centimeters or less, that actual small bite four to one closure yeah. versus four to one closure with mesh and see if potentially, as we kind of said before, for the smaller hernias, yeah. maybe if you really suture it the right way, is that enough? That, that's never actually been done. And I think that would be an interesting kind of mesh versus no mesh yeah. type to see, but, but we just, we don't know the answer to that yet. So I have a unique population of women who uh, want or are good candidates for tummy tuck and are willing to, you know, I, I, I practice in Beverly Hills. I'm in what's called the golden triangle. I believe there's more plastic surgeons per square foot in my golden triangle than anywhere else in the world. I believe that's a true fact. Um, so pl- uh, tummy tucks are, are not, uh, you know, a lot of people have tummy tucks, but what I'm learning is because I have a lot of patients of hernias and or need a uh, tummy tuck. So we're, we're working on using the tummy tuck, the plication as your biologic to close the hernia. So you close the hernia and then you then plicate 
the fascia on top of it. Um, obviously done with, with good technique. I have excellent plastic surgeons uh, available to me and I work with them. And so we're, we have a, a series of patients now that if they didn't get the tummy tuck, I would have done a mesh repair, you know, incisional hernia, right? Incisional yep. hernia is by definition, 50 or 60% recurrence if you don't use mesh. Yep. So the mesh is indicated, but I haven't put mesh in them. Instead, they had the tummy tuck because it was within a diastasis or um, they had a previous tummy tuck that needed revision. And, you know, knock on wood, it's been, I think the latest one's like four years and they're doing really well. So. Well, there's no doubt about it. If you, if you watch a surgeon close a tummy tuck, it's usually two layers inverted yes. and yes. they're meticulous. And so, you know, as we said, it's kind of, it's not the club, it's the person swinging the club. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, there's no question about it that um, that that it, it not, people typically get tummy tucks tend to maybe be younger, a little healthier, and whatnot. But there's no question that yes, correct. You know, for some of the smaller things, it does make me wonder. Now, for the really big things, and I think that's no, important. No, no, no. You know, look when you had two or three or four failed hernia operations and the hernia is yeah. really big. You know, at that point, we don't have yeah. any other options. You're going to need a big operation with a yeah. big. And it's likely you're going to feel better after that. Yes. But, but, this, but the earlier stage, and I, I kind of liken it to like, I, I feel like I want to tell people, hey, look, it's same thing. I think we talked about this for umbilical hernias. You know, if you have a one centimeter umbilical hernia, I tell everybody, let me just stitch it up. There's probably a 90% chance you'll never need mesh. Yeah. And if you don't need mesh, you don't want mesh. And then if it comes back, then we can go ahead and put a piece of mesh. So I, I think Correct. perfectly fine. Uh, it avoids a lot of the stress and, and the concern and the, you know, of what's happened with the mesh, particularly in young people. So I, I think that for the small umbilicals, you should just stitch them up and, and let and see what happens. Correct. And I, I exactly part of that consent in, in agreeing to a non-mesh repair is then if it fails, right, then, then there must be a discussion where you're going to need mesh. Obviously not in patients that are, uh, you know, reacting too much but these are the in the typical patient um i'd love to know your behind the scenes preparation in repairing hernias that are of this great magnitude you mentioned some of them can be 15 hour operations um i think typically they're more than three or four hours of these really long operations um what is a toll on you as a surgeon before and after and then also what rigors do you put the patient through before they're eligible to have such an operation Sure, sure. So, so for me, <laughs> I've got a sore back and I've got a sore shoulder. There's no question about it. I think one of the interesting things about this operation, particularly when you do it open, is that there is no what we call a retractor, where there's kind of something that normally we put something in that kind of holds everything open. In this operation, it's really just you as the surgeon that kind of has to get exposure to do this. And that's actually probably one of the biggest reasons that we do require weight loss before this operation, because if you're too heavy, we just can't move things out of the way to see what we need to. And it's just too difficult on our back. Now, right. knock on wood, I have not had back or shoulder surgery yet, but, but, uh, but I sense that I will be there uh, uh, one day soon uh, for that. But, but there's no doubt about it. It does take a strain. I think it also, truthfully, these are big operations uh, on people who often have a lot of other illnesses and whatnot. And there's a, certainly, there's a, there's a mental strain of just, you know, worrying about patients and, and making sure they're doing okay. Um, and so I think, that's kind of my segue into it's a lot for me. Uh, and these are, you know, long cases, a lot of stress and effort and whatnot. So I do want to make sure that the patients understand what they're signing up for. And, and probably the biggest thing that I focus on is trying to have people understand that, that we are a team during this and the teamwork starts the minute I meet you. And so your role as a patient on that team starts getting ready before surgery. And that's making sure that you've lost enough weight so that it's safe. And there's no magic number, but it's just doing the best that you can, you know, trying to quit smoking if at all possible, making sure that your diabetes is under control and really taking good general health, trying to walk and get your heart and lungs going to under, undergo that. And so you put that effort up front. And then once you go to sleep, it's on me. And that's for me to do my yes. job and bring all that. And I tell everybody, I'm like, listen, 
if it takes me 10 hours to put you back together, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be there with you. You know, yeah. if I'm tired, if I don't, if I don't like my nurse that day, if I got to fight with someone, <laughs> if I got to get to my kid's basketball game, I will be there until the end. So my expectation is no excuses from anybody. We're all in this together. We're all going to do our best. And that goes for, for, for post-op as well. So I think a lot of this is making sure that you're, I tell patients also like, look, when you leave here, you're going to get your surgery day, put that on your refrigerator. And yeah. that is your, that is your day to get your life back together. So you train for that day. And when I'm there, I will, that's how I see this is I'm here to make you better. Yeah. Yeah. You got to see it too. And you can't just be, put your arms out and say, Hey, I'm at the Cleveland clinic. Mike Rosen, take care of me. Cause that, that, that'll never work. And it's gotta be a team. Yeah. And on that note, um, what do you do in terms of uh, weight loss recommendations? One patient said their doctor told them they have to lose 30 pounds before they can have their hernia paired. Is that something that, uh, how, how aggressively do you get involved? Do they do uh, medical weight loss, surgical weight loss? Um, so how much a, weight do they have to lose? And in patients that have such huge, that, that are disabled from their hernia, how do you get them to lose weight? Yeah. So obviously, you know, obesity and being overweight is a, is a, is a very difficult disease. And I think that we're learning. Yeah. There's no easy fix for that. Uh, you know, bariatric surgery hasn't been an all fix. Medical weight loss isn't an all fix. I think that this is a really, really tough problem uh, to deal with that I have fought for, you know, most of my uh, adult life as a surgeon. And so I think to, to answer the question, I don't think there's a magic number uh, but we have looked at this a lot, particularly in our quality collaborative. And the bottom line is uh, we, we look at what's called your BMI, uh, which is your uh, height and your weight and gives us kind of a general number. And, and we want it to be about in the mid thirties, uh, which is about where we think things are safe. That's again, it depends on where you start. If you start at 50, it's unlikely you're going to get down to the mid thirties. So, so we want to see effort. And so what we have done, uh, we have a whole program. Uh, we actually have a virtual coach that you get. Mm, okay. Uh, interestingly, 75% of people don't actually call that virtual coach back just because there's a lot of issues that oh go. My God. Yeah. Um, we have a great bariatric program where we'll offer people to get bariatric surgery. If it's possible to do like a sleeve uh, before this, which, which also can be difficult and not doable. Yeah. Now we typically recommend, we have a whole medical weight loss program which is like a protein sparing fast. But ultimately I think that, um, I, I, and I just like to stress this for patients is this is your chance. And, and one of the things that, so most people who come to see me who've had complications, they, a lot of them revolve around infection and they often think of them more as rejection, but it's really an infection. And the best way to reduce your chances yes. of infection is losing weight. And yeah. so I, I want them to understand that, hey, look, I'm going to do a lot of different techniques in the operating room to try and reduce infection. But what I need you to do is get ready before surgery. So sometimes it's 30 pounds, sometimes it's 50, sometimes it's 10. A lot of times it's just kind of understanding mentally as a patient that, hey, I'm about to potentially have a life altering operation. This is not go to the hospital, go home, and I'll never think about this again. You might think about this for the rest of your life every day if this doesn't go well. Yeah. So get yourself ready to go on that trip as best you can. And that's kind of embracing, Hey, I have a disease. I got to do what I can to get ready. And so we so offer all support. It's not perfect and everybody doesn't lose weight, but, but we certainly try and do it. So, so true. So uh, a lot of people are thanking you. Uh, this is a very inspiring talk for them. Uh, we have one uh, regular on hernia talk who I love. And she said she's looking forward to contributing as the patient perspective on the ACHQC Welcome. Patient advisory committee. So thank you, Dr. Rosen, for starting the quality collaborative. Do you want to end with that and sure. tell us a little bit about it and what oh, patients yeah. can do? Absolutely. So, so we, uh, I, I'm the medical director and the co-founder with Bed Polish, who I think has also been on this before as well. He's been on our show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so basically we started this about eight years ago now, and it's basically a way to try and bring all of the stakeholders together. And that is the FDA, industry, surgeons, and patients all to get together and try and understand what do we really need to do to improve outcomes from a good place. And so um, I think patients are critical. Uh, and I think we, we have a whole patient advocacy committee, which I, I'm excited to be a part of it. And I think that yes. uh, Harriet Schwartzman is, is, is the lead on that. And I think that 
uh, we're having our upcoming summit meeting in, in March where there will be patients who are there to kind of talk and interact with us. Cause I think that perspective is key mm -hmm. and like everything in life, uh, when there isn't communication, there builds mistrust, uh, and, and people don't understand what the other people are doing. And right. even though everybody might be trying to do something for the right reason and improve outcomes, if people aren't communicating, the vision is not aligned. So, so we collect data, we reach out to patients, we try and engage and try and figure out quite frankly, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and learn from each other. So uh, it's obviously, that's one of my passions. Uh, and, and it's certainly been a great eight years. And I'm glad that we're finally kind of bringing in the patient perspective. And I think this is our next big leap forward is to kind of leverage that relationship to understand what's going on. And I tell patients, I encourage patients to not only find surgeons that are members of this quality collaborative, it's achqc.org. So surgeons like me who have chosen to be involved, every single patient we operate on that is hernia related gets plugged into this. And that means that I care about what happens to my patient years down the road. I'd like to learn more about uh, my own patients and also others. So I highly encourage that either you find surgeons um, to take care of you that already have that commitment, or if you have a local surgeon who doesn't, please tell them to go and become a member. I think it's free. Is it free? Yeah, it's free. Totally free. In fact, in fact, I would echo what you, the one thing I would just say is I, I to me, what, what one of the things about the quality collaborative that I think is important, particularly for patients' perspective, and, and, and I think it's important to kind of put this out there, is it's just like sports, athletics, everything. There really are, uh, there's going to be a spectrum of surgeons uh, across surgery. And so one of our goals at the collaborative is not necessarily to say we're all going to be the same and have the same outcomes. Right. But what our real goal is to say that we want to make sure every single surgeon is the best possible surgeon that he or she can be by going through this process, looking at your outcomes, looking at your data, mm -hmm. making sure you're doing things right. And so to me, what it really is, is a stamp of is you have a surgeon that after every one of your operations, mm -hmm. they're going to sit down for two to three minutes yeah. and they're going to say what happened and they're going to engage long-term. And so to me, it's almost like the Better Business Bureau stamp, what you go in, you say, and, and so I, I tell all patients, hey, look, when you meet with a surgeon for an operation, that's going to have a device that's put in you for the rest of your life. Yeah. You want to make sure that that surgeon is invested in what's going to happen to you for the rest of your life. So I think that's really key. Um, and, and I think for, for, for patients, that's certainly something to ask and say, Hey, you know, if you're not, then what are you doing to track your outcomes and why yes. are you not doing that? Yes, absolutely. And it's the only outcomes database that is focused on hernias. It asks so many specific questions. What suture did you use? What mesh did you use? What size did you use tax? What kind of tax? These are all so key because there's so much chatter and concern and negative information about what we do as hernia surgeons because there's so many patients have been hurt. Um, there's a lot of them. It's not like hundreds or thousands, it's more than that. And so this is the only manner that I know of that can at least prospectively kind of track what we do and then look at the outcomes to learn. Because I personally will have, I don't know, five patients with a certain problem. But if there's a hundred of me out there, we now have a database of 500 and we can learn much more about that. So thank you for doing that. Um, Dr. Paulus was on this uh, several months ago. It was really great because we also talked about his core health and uh, one of the resources on the achqc.org is this patient, and I, I give it the handout to my patients on like exercises they can do yep. uh, before, during, and after surgery from hernias. So, well, there's actually just I'll, I'll plug this out there too yeah. for anybody's interested, particularly if anybody kind of has any abdominal wall issues or whatnot. Yeah. We actually have a free app. Uh, it's on the uh, iPhone or the Android. It's achqc, and it actually has. Uh, physical therapy directed with pictures and videos yeah. uh, of kind of how to rebuild your core after surgery and whatnot. Yeah. I'll put the link uh, on this on Facebook. Yep. Yeah. All right. What a great way to end the evening. Thank you for your time, Dr. Rosen. This ends us for our, yet another hernia talk. We're reaching our 
one year anniversary pretty soon because we started this at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, thanks everyone who follows me on uh, Facebook at Dr. Tofi, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at Hernia Doc. Uh, tonight, I will make sure that you all get the links to watch this and share it with your friends on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. And I will see you next week with yet another great um, guest. Very excited to share it all with you. And thank you for your time. I do appreciate it. Hope to see you soon. All right. Thanks, everybody. Be safe. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That concludes another fact-filled episode of Hernia Talk Live, the only weekly podcast that helps answer your hernia-related questions. Today's program was produced by Dr. Shirin Tofai. For more details about today's episode, look at our show notes. Remember to follow Hernia Talk Live on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps us spread the word that it's not just a hernia. See you next week for another great episode. Thank you.